Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio, a weekly look at news, politics and culture from a socialist perspective. This week, Rupture regular Diana O'Dwyer sat down with Rosemary Dodd from the Reform and Revolution Marxist Caucus in the DSA in America to discuss the Supreme Court's plans to undermine Roe v. Wade and the attack on abortion rights in the US. Um, It's an interesting discussion, full of lessons for us here in Ireland too. If you do enjoy it, please share this episode with a friend, send it into our WhatsApp group, spread the word. We need more listeners. We need more people spreading this podcast by word of mouth. And of course, if you really want to see more episodes like this, more interviews, more panels, more discussions, more live shows, then please do consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash rupture radio. But for now, I'll hand over to Diana. radio listeners. Uh, my name is Diana O'Dwyer. I'm a member of RISE and a people for profit activist. We have a special interview here tonight with Rosemary Dodd, a leading activist in RISE's sister's organisation in the US, Reform and Revolution, which is a revolutionary socialist caucus in the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, which works um, within and outside the Democratic Party. So she's going to talk to us about the fight back against the leaked Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade the historic 1973 Supreme Court decision that led to the granting of abortion rights in the US. Welcome to Rupture Radio, Rosemary. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the podcast and to get a voice from the ground of the fight back against what really is an historic attack on abortion rights. Uh, Could you maybe start by explaining the significance of Roe v. Wade and how that judgment came about? You know, what exactly is it that the Supreme Court is is seeking to overturn here? Yeah, good question. So, Roe versus Wade is a 1973 court decision that um, determined that uh, abortion is a constitutional right. Um, it's basically decided on private on privacy rights that, you know, it's an individual decision between a pregnant person and their doctor um, to have an abortion. And it didn't make it so that you couldn't have any restrictions on abortion. It made it so that abortion was legal pre-viability. So about three months into pregnancy. Um, Roe versus Wade was not something that was handed down kind of from on high. Um, it was something that was the culmination of the women's liberation movement um, that brought together, you know, more mainstream or liberal um, large organizations and um, more kind of radical grassroots working class um people of color sort of organizations, including socialists that pushed for more radical change. And Roe versus Wade was, you know, decided with a majority Republican appointed um, Supreme Court. And uh, for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know, Republicans are the right wing party in um, mainstream party in the United States. And uh, it was under Nixon, who was an anti-abortion president as well. So um, this was something that the court really, I think, felt forced to do, especially, you know, at the time in the 1970s, there was a lot of grassroots activism, a lot of strikes happening, a lot of um, like racial justice uprisings and stuff. So this was really something that I think the capitalist class felt like they had to do to preserve their legitimacy. So Roe Ro was very, very hard won um, from the bottom up. And there's been a lot of attacks on abortion rights already, like even before this leaks judgment, haven't they? Like, um, I've heard about the abortion ban in Texas, 
um, a law in Mississippi banning abortions after 15 weeks. So how bad is the situation already just in terms of the practicalities of trying to access abortion care in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, abortion being legal on paper is only a really, really small. Uh, it's it's an important thing, but it's like a small um, factor in whether somebody can actually get an abortion. So like I was saying, Roe didn't prevent um, abortion restrictions. And over 1,300 abortion restrictions have been enacted at the state level since Roe. So um, the various different states will put into effect all kinds of different things like medically unnecessary restrictions on clinics, like your your doorways have to be this wide, or you have to have hospital admitting privileges in order to perform abortions. Um, fun fact, my mother was actually an abortion provider in East Tennessee, which is a, you know, a red conservative state with a lot of abortion restrictions. And she had to jump through a lot of hoops in order to be able to provide abortions legally because of the really bizarre, um, restrictive laws in terms of like making sure she had hospital admitting privileges, which required her to like perform other services other than abortions at a different clinic. So it's really quite wild. And, you know, additionally, we have something called the Hyde Amendment, which um, is a, a federal law that prohibits the federal money from, to, from going to fund abortion. So abortion is super, ex- can be super expensive for people. Um, so, you know, I think we all know that like rich people will always be able to get an abortion either by, you know, flying somewhere where it's legal or, you know, paying a doctor, taking time off work. Um, but poor people and like, you know, especially people of color, trans people, et cetera, are going to have a really hard time, are already having a really hard time getting abortions. And, you know, even though it's legal on paper, super cost prohibitive. Yeah, that's that sounds terrible. And how, how disastrous would overturning Roe versus Wade be like on top of all that? I mean, are we talking about um, more restrictions and even more bans in, um, in conservative red states? Or could you even have a situation where there's just a total national ban on abortion? Like, could that happen? Or um, is that a possibility? Yeah, I'll start with that last question first. Um, the uh, Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said a few days ago that a national abortion ban was a possibility, um, though he has since somewhat backed away from that. I think Republicans at the national level would prefer to leave it to states um, to ban abortions themselves, because even though there's a section of their fairly rabid base that, that this is their issue and that they've been like planning, <laughs> planning for this moment um, for decades and decades, uh, it's not a popular thing, you know, like um, only 19% of people in the U.S. think abortion should be banned under all or most circumstances. So, um, you know, the pol- the polling is mixed, but it would be a wildly unpopular thing to do. So I think that um, nationally, Republicans would prefer instead of enacting a total ban to like enable states to ban it on a case-by-case basis and still use it as an election issue. Though it's certainly within the realm of possibility, depending on the political landscape. What would overturning Roe do on the state level? Well, there are about 13 states now that have so-called trigger laws. And a trigger law in this case is something that is soon, it's already a law on the books, but it's not in effect until the moment that Roe is overturned. So that means the second that Roe is overturned, these laws are going to go into effect without the state legislatures having to come together 
back together and like, you know, write the legislation, pass the legislation. Um, There are dozens of other states that would also like have like more restrictive laws than are currently allowed on the books or would, you know, come back together to pass abortion restrictions. These are generally states where there might only already only be a few abortion clinics in the state um, where it's already difficult to get an abortion, but at least it's still possible. Um, So this would leave millions of people without abortion care. Additionally, uh, you know, right now the, the um, FDA, which regulates, um, you know, food and health uh, and drugs nationally has made it um, legal for abortion pills at home um, to be administered up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. They're considered at home by the World Health Organization to be safe at least 12 weeks in. Um, So now, like during um, the COVID pandemic, there are also laws that um, people, pregnant people can use telehealth and telemedicine to get prescriptions for these drugs and take them safely at home to terminate their pregnancies. But it's very likely that um, this is going to become illegal in a lot of states. And that that's legal nationwide, is it at the moment, like even in Texas and Mississippi or um, just everywhere else? You know, I think that there they are technically um, like you you have to there are like underground kind of abortion pill like uh, processes. It's not illegal, generally speaking, for the, the pregnant person to take these pills, but it can be illegal for people to provide them right now. So yeah, it's not, it's not a total in every state. It's not a total kind of panacea, but it is a lifeline for a lot of people right now. Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of the struggle for abortion rights here in Ireland. You know, it was something that um, activists like uh, on the left really focused on um, organizing civil disobedience around abortion pills um, as a way to kind of, you know, challenge the the ban on abortion. So might come back to that a bit at the end when we're talking about like what the movement can do um, in America to fight back against this. Um, so before we go on to that, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the possible implications for other rights like marriage equality and um, the introduction of anti-trans laws. I've read a little bit about that, that there could be some implications um, for this judgment and um, for those um, aspects as well. Uh, could you maybe shed some light on that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of concern that the same kind of judicial logic that allowed for Roe versus Wade to be upheld could also be applied to other basic rights like um, gay marriage that was one that was allowed by the courts in 2015, um, even like a sodomy laws, um, which were legalized prior to that could be potentially overturned. And and Justice um, Alito, who wrote this opinion, it was opposed to both gay marriage and um, overturning sodomy laws. So there's a lot of concerns about that. I've also seen concerns that, you know, they could potentially um, overturn the right to interracial marriage. I think that that interracial marriage was allowed prior to Roe um, by a Supreme Court decision. So that seems like a little bit more of a stretch to me, but I think that people are really concerned that if the court can come after such a hard one right as Roe, where else are they going to go after that to things that people really felt like, you know, were were solidified rights that they had. Yeah. And um, that's very frightening, all right, <laughs> that there could be just, you know, a whole a lot of other stuff. Yeah. 
in terms of, um, I'm sorry, in terms of trans rights, um, there's not a Supreme Court decision that I at least am aware of to protect trans people. Um, so it's not as if the, though I'm sure that this current like arch conservative Supreme Court would um, not rule favorably towards trans people. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, I think the connection, the main connection though, is that we're seeing an absolute tidal wave of anti-trans legislation um, at the state level to outlaw like trans youth being able to use bathrooms that correspond to their gender, gender identity, being able to play sports, getting access to healthcare in a variety of ways. And I don't think it's a coincidence that um, this is coming at the same time that Roe is set to be overturned. I think that these kind of like um, anti-bodily autonomy, conservative controlling laws are, are connected. And I think that we need to, as socialists, address them as such. Yeah, it's just this whole wave of reactionary stuff um, coming from the right um, together. So, like, are Biden and the Democratic Party doing anything about this? Um, don't they have a majority in Congress? Couldn't they stop this if they wanted to? <laughs> that is an excellent question. So both Biden and Obama before him ran on um, enshrining the right to abortion as a day one sort of um, act. And both of them have neglected to do so. Biden, um, for the first, I don't, I'm sure this isn't the case anymore, but for the first 200 something days of his presidency, didn't even say the word abortion. Um, he, up until relatively recently, was, was anti-abortion um, and only in 2020 uh, started to support the repeal of the Hyde Amendment under pressure from his base. So Biden is not traditionally a champion for abortion rights. Um, what the Democrats could, the most viable option for the Democrats um, would be to um, stack the Supreme Court with uh, pro-choice justices. So um, taking the court up to 13 members to make sure that there is a um, pro-choice majority on the Supreme Court. Um, they could also pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which is actually being voted on by the, it passed in the House, the Democratic controlled House, and it's up for a vote in the Senate today. However, there's something called the filibuster, um, which Biden has yet to overturn, which means that um, you actually, in the 100-person Senate, you actually need 60 votes to pass something. Um, so not only have they neglected to overturn the filibuster, which is something they could do, um, they, there is also one Democratic senator named Joe Manchin, who is the thorn in the side of um, pretty much any progressive sort of legislation who actually does not support the Women's Health Protection Act. Um, so it's a 50-50 split in the Senate right now. Um, so with a, you know the vice president, Kamala Harris, as the tiebreaker. So even one Democrat being against passing this and them failing to um, remove the filibuster is means that they're not going to be able to do anything, which I think is just like a devastating indictment of the Democratic Party and their inability to actually protect um, basic rights of people that that they campaign on and use to try to get people right. Like right now, they're trying to use the threat against abortion to say, oh, you have to vote for Democrats in the midterm elections coming up this November. But it's like, well, you've controlled, you know, three, all three parts of government this time, you know, you controlled three Causes of government under the Obama administration, and yet still we're seeing these attacks on Roe. So I, I think that those um, 
those are definitely falling a bit flat. Like, are they coming under pressure even from the more kind of mainstream pro-choice groups like Planned Parenthood? Um, like, surely this is their one big issue and they're very linked into the Democratic Party, um, but they are not succeeding in getting them to take any greater actions or, you know, with pressure being brought to bear um, on them from outside and um, like, have there been big demonstrations or protests that have taken place? and um, have the DSA been involved in that, um, trying to put pressure on? Yes, absolutely. So the day um, that the decision came out, there were large, many like mobilizations, like spontaneous mobilizations in cities all across the country to protest this. And DSA chapters all over the country were involved in, in calling those, including I'm in Portland, Oregon, and my chapter organized a um, kind of last minute protest that brought out hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, so people were like really ready to take to the streets. Planned Parenthood is an interesting case because they have traditionally very much been um, pursued the strategy of like legal challenges or, you know, getting Democrats elected like they endorsed Biden. Um, they, you know, spend millions of dollars trying to get Democrats elected, but they don't put the same level of resources into um, like street mobilizations, protests, building grassroots networks, etc. But even Planned Parenthood um, that has these more kind of liberal tactics um, has been part of a coalition to organize a um, Bands Off Our Bodies National Day of Action on the 14th. Um, so just a few days from now and where um, they have the National Women's March, Planned Parenthood and um, the SCIU union um, involved in planning this. So I think that's a really good sign that Planned Parenthood is willing to call these marches. And I think they're feeling pressure from their base in order to like actually pursue tactics beyond just like legislative lobbying, though. I think that pressure really needs to be kept up because, you know, this, this draft opinion leaked, but people who are paying attention knew that this was ha- going to happen. Like Planned Parenthood knew that, Roe versus Wade was set to be overturned this summer and had not done (laughs) anything really to try to prepare for it um, in terms of like outward political organizing. Um, So I really think that this is the result of feeling pressure from below in terms of um, like other organizations like NARAL pro-choice. I'm only seeing like them not calling for demonstrations or anything. They're only talking about, uh, you know, pressuring the Senate to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which is clearly not actually going to happen, at least not without massive grassroots pressure that they're not helping to organize. Um, DSA is having a national call tomorrow night in order to plan a response to um, the the fight for re- reproductive rights. Um, I wrote an article in March talking about how this was going to happen that was published in our reform and revolution magazine. And we actually sent the article to the um, national political committee of DSA, asking them for a response, asking them to um, talk about their plans, how they plan to defend abortion um, because they really hadn't been talking about it at all at a national level. And they did not respond um, to, you know, our requests. So I think, you know, there was, they're also responding to like kind of how 
much grassroots attention this is getting. And I think like the lack of preparation when we knew this was coming is, is, you know, I'm not, it's definitely not too late. And I think there's a lot that DSA can do right now, but I do wish that there had already been like a mass campaign getting started, getting revved up so that we could be more prepared to respond right now. Yeah, I wonder, is there a sense that like people are sort of passively waiting for Roe v. Wade to actually be overturned and then there'll be a big kind of outpouring at that stage, you know, um, which obviously isn't the best strategy waiting, you know, waiting passively um, for this to happen. Um, But I can imagine that probably will be a huge reaction, um, you know, when it does actually happen. Um, I mean... like I could see this really being an absolutely massive um, issue um, for the women's movement, which is maybe in a bit of a lull after COVID and everything, but had been really growing um, in the US in the years prior to that and internationally as well. Um, what kind of role would you see um, the DSA being able to to play um, in that women's movement and in kind of just building um, the mass movement that's obviously going to be needed now to defend abortion rights um, in the US? Like there's an obvious need to go beyond just that kind of lobbying kind of strategies that the the big kind of NGOs have had for years and, you know, get back to the more radical approach that won abortion rights in the first place? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So DSA is an organization of almost 100,000 members, which is, you know, the third biggest socialist organization in US history. Um, however, you know, only a, a you know, a certain percentage of those members are are actively engaged in grassroots organizing. And I think it's important for DSA to jump into this with every, like, you know, all the enthusiasm that we possibly can. But I think we also need to resist the urge to try to substitute ourselves for the broader forces that are actually able to mobilize people, not just in the hundreds or thousands, but in the millions, like, like Planned Parenthood. I think even as frustrating as an organization like Planned Parenthood and the Women's March are in terms of their connections to the Democratic Party and reliance on more kind of tepid methods that, you know, step-by-step sort of methods that have only seen abortion rights wither away over the past several decades. Um, I think we need to like heavily orient towards these broader forces um, and really cohere a left-wing socialist wing of these movements that can push more... um, effective tactics and radical demands. For instance, I think defending Roe needs to be our starting point. That's where a lot of people coming into the movement are going to be energized from. Um, That's where we're seeing like massive outpouring of rage and hurt from people all over the country. But I think, you know, it's part of our role to broaden that to say, we don't, you know, even under Roe, we already can't afford abortions. Millions of people, especially working class people, can't already can't get abortion care. Um, so we need to, I think, connect it to the fight for universal health care under a Medicare for all program that that pays for abortion, um, as well as other health care that pays for gender affirming care for transgender people. Um, and we also need to like broaden the movement by pushing the idea that people also have the right to have children and raise them in a safe and healthy environment and that people deserve like parental leave and childcare. Uh, The average abortion, um, you know, person getting an abortion is a mother with children and is like working class and poor. And, you know, a lot of activists, um, like socialist activists, people of color activists, 
um, developed the framework of reproductive justice because people, you know, also need living wages. And a lot of people getting abortions would, I'm sure, like to be parents <laughs> if they had the economic conditions. So I think the more that, you know, socialists can play a role in broadening the demands of the movement, I think that'll be helpful. But we also really can't, you know, we need to connect to where people are and pull them um, in a direction that is actually capable of winning. Because I, I think we've seen that just having a right on paper isn't sufficient. I think we can also introduce um, tactics that, you know, could potentially be more effective. Uh, I think we could start building for a one day feminist strike from students and, um, you know, people all over the country taking, uh, you know, one day to the extent that they're able to, to um, stop working and to demonstrate, I think we can build for a million person march on the Supreme Court potentially this summer. Uh, I think the the key is to have really escalating demands and being willing to stop business as usual because, you know, the women's marches when Trump was elected were huge, but, and I think a really good step and a really good sign that people were willing to mobilize, but they didn't actually, because they weren't escalating because they um, weren't connected to grassroots ongoing campaigns. They really didn't result in, in change. And I think that, you know, we need to see not just large demonstrations, but them being connected to, to other tactics and grassroots organizing. Yeah, I think there's a load of really great ideas there about how to push things forward. Like, I think, as you said, like always linking it to that wider agenda of women's rights, you know, that you, as well as abortion rights, you need to have free childcare, you need to have universal healthcare. Um, it was interesting, actually, when they brought in, you know, limited abortion rights um, here, um, abortion is available on request up to 12 weeks. One thing that they did get right with that was in making it free. Um, so abortion is free to everybody. Um, well, you have to have a PPS number. So there's still some aspects around undocumented um, people in terms of access. But in general, it's it's freely available. Um so I think that's a, a really important point. And it's, you know, I'm like, I mean, obviously I'm aware of the situation with healthcare being very expensive in the US. Um, but the fact that people have always had to pay from abortion and even though it's been available for so long that it was never made free is obviously like a massive restriction on that access. Um, and then the other um, shocking thing, I think, from a kind of European point of view about the situation in the US is that there's just still no paid maternity leave, really, is there? Like it's of one of the only rich countries where that doesn't exist. Um, and, and I think there has been kind of a growing push for that as well, hasn't there, um, in the last few years, like some states bringing in some limited forms of it, but, you know, still not happening on a federal level. Yeah, there's, there's no federal provided maternity uh, or paternity leave, zero weeks. You know, a lot of people are going back to work uh, days after bearing children and oh my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> unbelievably and also no free childcare to, to take care of those babies while they're working. Um, we also have like pretty devastatingly high um, like maternal mortality rate in our country, you know? So we're looking at like, you know, people and women being forced to like forced to carry pregnancies to term with no uh, healthcare, no support system. You know, it can cost, tens of thousands of dollars to have a baby in a hospital if you don't have insurance, you know, can really bankrupt people. So we're looking at like something that's really going to disproportionately 
affect the working class and and poor people in terms of like you know being i mean being forced to bear a child that you don't want to is a horrible violation of bodily autonomy regardless of your income status but i think we're really looking at something that's going to just devastate um poor and working class people and communities of color you know like just it's it's going to have a hugely disproportionate impact on on those people yeah, I think I saw a, a phrase from the leaked judgment being highlighted what, that it was about like the the domestic supply of infants, which really just sent a shiver down my spine in terms of the reasoning um, of these conservative judges. You know, the extent to which it's about controlling women's bodies and, you know, just taking away um, those kind of decisions from people um, and also just like an incredibly backward um, agenda that here in Ireland that you know, stirs up a lot of um, memories of like the mother and baby homes and so on, where like, you know, people had their children forcibly taken off them um, when abortion wasn't available either. So it's all just part of a, a package, you know, of incredibly regressive attacks on women's rights. Um, another interesting thing um, you said there um, was about um, the DSA um effectively kind of working as part of a broader kind of united front um, with organizations like um, Planned Parenthood, um, those bigger organizations, and trying to be kind of the radical wing um, of that movement. Um, And that's partly, as you said, to putting forward that wider socialist agenda and linking it, um, but also being kind of more tactically radical and seeking to kind of suggest more radical tactics and you know, set an example, I suppose, for the rest of the movement. Um, so could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Um, like, are you, what sort of tactics are you thinking about? Strikes, direct actions, civil di- disobedience? Um, is that so- something that you think will play an important role? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, mass marches and demonstrations are obviously like a huge way that, um, you know, people can like, demonstrate against like regressive abortion laws and in favor of like a broader program of, of reproductive justice. But also, um, you know, I think the strike is always the most powerful tool that working people can use to force, um, force the capitalist class and the ruling class to grant concessions. And I think we're seeing a resurgent, um, labor movement here in the U S it's still pretty small compared to what it once was, but, um, you know, we're seeing Starbucks unionizing, we're seeing like the Amazon warehouses, like one of them already unionized and are seeking to unionize. And I think this, you know, a few years ago, we saw the um, teachers strikes going strong. So I think that the strike has entered kind of the um, American consciousness more than it has in decades. And I think that, you know, we haven't seen as many strikes over like social or political demands as much as workplace demands. But I think that um, introducing the idea, starting probably with just a one-day um, feminist strike, but maybe building towards broader um, strike action could be a really powerful tool. And, you know, there was a there was a one-day um, strike, I believe, before Roe in, in 1970 in the U.S. And there was also, like, I think we could follow the example of, like, you know, um, women in Poland who <laughs> did a, you know, one day strike that temporarily for stall- stalled um, legislation. I believe the Green Tide movement in Argentina also um, 
used strike action. So I think those kind of like more militant tactics coupled with um, coupled with uh, bigger demonstrations would be helpful. And yeah, I think civil disobedience, I think like taking a cue from what you guys have done in Ireland and there are already grassroots organizations providing um, abortion care via like delivering pills. And I think that, you know, that kind of aid is obviously really important, but I think, I think what you guys did was using that kind of aid in a more politicized way to raise the profile of the rest of the movement, I think could end up being a really important, um, important part of this. Um, yeah. And, you know, civil disobedience sort of protests and occupations are also like a good way to stop business as usual. Yeah. Like, um, here in Ireland, um, at the time there was Rosa socialist feminist campaign, which was set up by activists in the former organization. I was in the socialist party, um, still going today, obviously. Um, and they kind of identified civil disobedience around actually providing the safe but illegal abortion pills as an important way of undermining the abortion ban. Um, so as you said, like in the US, there were organizations already delivering the pills to people. Thousands of women were already taking the pills, you know, um, in Ireland on a yearly basis. It was already happening. The ban was already being undermined in reality. Um, so that's something that, you know, exists and that will exist in the US as well. Like I've read that Women on Web is already involved in supplying abortion pills um, in the US and is kind of ready to partner up probably with organizations for defying um, abortion bans in the US like they did with us in Ireland. Um, like they're a really great organization of um, activist doctors who've been doing this all around the world for years um, and are all about, you know, not just providing a medical service, but using that politically um, to open up more abortion rights. So like one thing we did was um, we organized an abortion pill bus where we toured around the country and we handed out abortion pills to um, people who needed them. And we made speeches, stop the bus in every place and like, you know, um, arranged for this to happen. And at the time, like there was a 14 year prison sentence for helping people to have an abortion. So we were really kind of, you know, defying the law and saying, you know, come and arrest us um, if you think you have the the support to do that. And basically the the state did not think that it would have public support to arrest, you know, feminist activists for helping other women who needed to access these pills. Um, so, you know, maybe that's something that could be um, a useful thing to try um, in the States in the future. Um, obviously, you need to have lots of activists to do that. I think though it's a tactic that had been used in the past as well. There was an abortion abortion bus before in Canada, I think, because we were kind of learning from past experience with more successful abortion struggles like um, in America and so on when we were doing our thing as well. Um, so it's interesting how you get these kind of movements learning from each other um, internationally, like we're all at different stages and um, in struggle at different times, you know. Um, and one thing I think that is quite strong in the US at the moment, like the labor movement does seem to be more in resurgence um, in the US. Like we're hearing a lot about successful unionization drives in Amazon and Starbucks and so on. Like, so do you think that there would be like, a receptive audience for the idea of um, unions being involved in like a one day strike or is that something that could be, you know, a runner that, that could fly, you know, um, at the moment with the, the labor movement in the U S. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think what, what 
Gilded in Ireland is is extremely inspirational. And I think it's amazing how movements are not isolated entities that kind of spring up randomly out of the blue, but that, you know, we take inspiration from one another and from history. And I think that that's another thing that socialists can offer is some of those lessons, um, you know, from other places. In terms of the labor movement, I think that it as things stand, it could be a bit of a stretch to get some of the large unions on board with a strike because a lot of these unions will not call for a strike over like immediate workplace demands either. Um, however, I think that consciousness can rapidly change. And I think we need to not underestimate the ability of like pressure from rank and file union members and from the community to um, like change, like change leadership, um, change the tactics of leadership, et cetera. Uh, you know, I think like with these Starbucks unions, um, union organizing, I, I don't know that they've issued statements on the, uh, potential overturn row, but a lot of these people are, you know, young, you know, progressive socialist, um, women in, in these organizations. So I could see Starbucks unions potentially getting on board with something like that. Like I mentioned earlier, SCIU, um, which is a quite a large union, um, you know, endorsed the um, bans off our bodies march that's going to happen on the 14th. Um, you know, I think, I think that there's definitely room for this to happen, though I do think there's going to need to be some pretty sizing changes, um, you know, potentially within union leadership or, you know, grassroots pressure um, from the rank and file. I think healthcare unions could potentially be a good, um, a good target because, uh, you know, a lot of these laws um, criminalizing abortion that are going to be in place are actually going to criminalize healthcare providers, not the people, necessarily the people getting the abortions, though Louisiana actually is considering legislation that would would criminalize the people actually getting the abortions, but I think healthcare unions could be a good um, could be a potential like uh, battle site for things like this. And I know a lot of nurses unions have been considering strike action over workplace issues, um, like during during COVID that they've experienced. So that's kind of strikes are kind of already on people's minds a little bit. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Yeah. No, it's interesting the point about healthcare workers because obviously that's going to have a big effect on like there's lots of healthcare workers who are involved in providing abortions um, at the moment as well. Like, um, so that's that would be a key um, group of people to mobilize among. So it'll be about kind of um, getting support for that in the various different trade unions and, and trying to involve that, and then the the wider uh, movement, the the NGOs and you know, the political stuff as well. Like, I mean, I know the most famous kind of um, left-wing Democrats at the moment um, are the ones in, you know, the squad. And have they been doing anything about this? Or um, do you see them having any particular strategy or is it kind of just waiting and they need to be kind of pushed from DSA and from the left in DSA to do more? Yeah, I think they absolutely need to be pushed. Um, I think, you know, it's worth saying that that the squad and, and AOC and Bernie do have the right position on paper and, you know, have been saying good things, but I would want to see them along with, you know, along with Planned Parenthood and the big women's organizations really taking the lead and calling for mobilizations because they have the, the platforms in order to make those mobilizations much more of like 
large and effective than than just DSA. So I think, um, you know, it's time for the you know four DSA members in Congress to form a socialist caucus and start like you know using their sway um, to push for the kind of mass action uh, tactics that are going to be necessary to actually preserve, not just preserve Roe, but, you know, expand abortion access um, and other services that are related that we've already talked about today. So, yeah, I I think that we've seen that they're not so much inclined to do it themselves. I think being in the ecosystem of like, you know, the ruling class in, in Washington has really kind of promoted a more conciliatory sort of a uh, gradualist approach amongst these Congress people. And I think DSA has a role to play in, in, you know, kind of learning how to both support and hold our Congress members accountable um, and pressure them to like use their positions and their platforms to, to mobilize um, instead of just kind of try to cut backroom deals. Yeah. So it's basically a, a fight on all fronts <laughs> using this many tactics as we can to build this movement. It's all been so interesting and inspiring. Rosemary, it's really good talking to you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Solidarity with your struggle. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We're, we're really inspired by what uh, the victory that was won in Ireland. Yeah, hopefully we can um, get, get you back again to talk about all this um, stuff a bit more and we can kind of share more of our experiences and stuff. Um, hopefully you'll be having good news about your success in fighting back against these attacks soon, you know. Because <laughs> um, I really do think there's a huge potential here for, you know, to turn this, you know, negative into positive with, with building, you know, a stronger women's rights and socialist movement um, in the US. Um, so thanks very much um, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, and, thank you again for uh, thank you again for having me. Okay, thanks. And good, good night to our viewers or listeners as well. Fuck, you stick your trousers on and you last bit of makeup. 